I'm going to read this morning from 1 Kings 18, beginning in verse 1. 1 Kings 18. Now it came about after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the face of the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, for it came about when Jezebel destroyed the prophets of the Lord that Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and provided them with bread and water. Then Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through all the land and to the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we will find grass and keep the horses and mules alive and we will not have to kill some of the cattle. So they divided the land between them to survey it. Ahab went one way by himself. Obadiah went another way by himself. Now as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him, and he recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is this you, Elijah, my master? And he said to him, It is I. Go say to your master, Behold, Elijah is here. And then in verse 16, So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. And it came about when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said to him, Is this you, you troubler of Israel? And he said, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and you have not followed, and you have followed the Baals. Now then send and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel, together with 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent a message among all the sons of Israel, and they brought the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer him a word. We'll pray. God, I thank you again for all that you have given us in Christ, Lord, that we've been made complete and we've been lavished with every blessing in the heavenly places. We thank you for the ministry of your spirit to teach us and to guide us and to lead us into all that is truth. And we pray this, we look at your word this morning, God, that you would again just work in our hearts, that we would understand what you're wanting to say, and that we would be responsive, Lord, in faith, in love, in obedience, God, to what your will is for us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, I appreciate Connor filling in for me last week. We had a busy week at his hill. Um, it was our annual delegates meeting, um, so the... The delegates and others from the five torchbearer centers in North America were together. Um, and it was a great time, tiring, but very good time. So we're back in 1 Kings, and this is um, really a tremendous chapter here. One thing is probably the, the incident in the life of Elijah that we know most about, if we know anything about Elijah. And this is going to be the chapter where he calls down fire from heaven, and then the rain comes. But it begins with this really what would have been a very curious statement um, to Elijah and even problematic because it says, After many days the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year saying, Go show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the face of the earth. The reason this is problematic and curious is because Deuteronomy 28 is the whole foundation for the situation that's going on here. You remember in in that chapter of Deuteronomy and the Palestinian covenant, God has said, if my people walk with me, I will bless them and I will send rain. If my people turn away from me, I will curse them and there will not be rain. And so they have not turned back to God. And God says, I'm about to send rain. Well, that's a problem because God, and hear me carefully on this, God cannot send rain at this time because the people's hearts have not turned back to God. And so to, to send rain at this time would be to violate his word, something he cannot do. And if anybody knew that for certain, it was Elijah. And so when God says, I'm about to send rain, then Elijah is supposed to put his thinking cap on and begin thinking through this. God cannot at this time send rain. Something has to happen. The people have to turn their hearts back to God. Well, they're not going to turn their hearts back to God until they have fully rejected Baal, 
Well, they're not going to reject Baal until they are convinced that Baal is totally incompetent, that he is impotent to carry out what he is supposed to carry out. Namely, Baal is the god of rain, hasn't been able to send rain for three and a half years, so the people are not so sure about Baal, but they haven't rejected him. But Baal is also the god of what? Fire. Ah, so if God's going to send rain, the people have to reject Baal, and to reject Baal, they're going to have to be utterly convinced that he is impotent to bring either rain or fire. He has no power, no ability to do these things. So that means when God says, I'm about to send rain, Elijah is, is supposed to think through this. Now, I, I make jokes all the time about blondes and not being able to think through things. And, but the thing, it's also very true of just men. We typically don't think as well or at least as frequently or as much as women do. And so I, I like the old illustration that I've, I've used sometimes in class where there, there's a, 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 um, a machine that just says, and it, and it says on the, on the control panel of this machine, on, off. And that's described as the way a man's brain works. And then there's another machine and it's got all this circuitry and wires and all these connectors. And they go, this is a woman's brain. So when we as men say to our wives, we're not thinking about anything. And the wife says, that cannot be true. And we go, it's absolutely true. So it's surprising to me that Elijah is thinking through this. If this had been a female prophet, I wouldn't have had any, any, you know, yeah, obviously, she sees the big picture here. She knows what's going on. But this is a male prophet, and he's thinking through this. And this goes back to what I think the Lord says, that we are to love him with all of our heart, all of our mind. We're supposed to be thinking people, not lazy, thinking people. And when God says something, we should be able to think through it. I think about the Genesis account where we have God creating one man and one woman. Does God need to tell us anything more? I mean, that should be enough if you are a thinking person to realize that is God's design for mankind. One man, one woman for all of life. That is his design. So we shouldn't even have to have any verses spelling it out for us. It should just be enough that this is what God has said, this is what he has illustrated, and now run with it. And so when God says here, I'm about to, show, to, to, to bring rain on the face of the earth, Elijah was expected to think through what God is saying. Because we don't have anything more, any more details here. And I think that's for a reason. So Elijah went to show himself, and it just coincidentally, we know there's no coincidences with God, it's like, you know, the, I've heard, you know, some, some people say, you know, as John Calvin would say, good luck. And if you know anything, you know, John Calvin would never have said good luck because he was all about predestination and election. There's no such thing as coincidences with God, no happen chance. And so he, it looks as though he just happens to bump into Ob to Obadiah on the way to finding Ahab. No happen chance. Obadiah, who knew? is a secret believer, and he is the right-hand man of Ahab, the most wicked king Israel will ever have. And his, his closest associate, his most trusted man, is a secret believer. Incredible. And this guy has, has in hiding, a hundred prophets, keeping them from Jezebel. I don't think it's, it's too far, too much to say that God often has strategically placed in the last places we would think of his people. This is often the case. Some of the most closed countries in the world today have, um, they're full of Filipino housekeepers, mechanics, yard workers, and they are extremely closed countries. But it happens to be that many of those Filipino workers are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in the places even that you would think there can't be any Christians there, God has oftentimes many more Christians than what we would ever think. This was the case with the Rome in the first century. 
This was the center of the cult of emperor worship. If you didn't worship the emperor, you could, you, you could face execution. And yet the city of Rome was full of Christians before Paul ever got there. God is always doing so much more than we can think, so much more than, than we would imagine. And here, this secret believer is actually strategically placed by God. We think, well, if he, sh he shouldn't be a secret believer, he ought to be bold. He ought to be standing out. I get it. But sometimes God has people in very strategic places, and it is in the best interest, not of themselves, but of everyone else, that they keep their mouth closed. Because they can have more influence, more power, can exercise protection over other people that they couldn't if they went around thumping their chest and telling everybody that they belong to Jesus. He's not denying his faith, but no, he isn't being a bold witness either. But he is living out what he believes. And so the main point here for Elijah is that Elijah needs to hear he is not the only prophet. Because after all these years, three and a half years, two miracles a day, Elijah has begun to think that he is the only one left. So this is really for him. We too are living in times, not so much here in the United States, or at least here in Texas, but we are living in times where increasingly it feels like we are the only one. And I would say to you, it is never as bad and it is never as good as it seems. But God is often doing much more than what we realize. And he has many more people out there who are quietly living in faith than what we realize. So he finally meets Ahab. And Ahab's words to him in verse 17, Is this you, you troubler of Israel? Remember, Ahab's only laid eyes on him one time. And that was very brief where he says, I am Elijah the Tishbite of the settlers of Gilead, as the Lord God of Israel is before whom I stand. Surely there shall not be, not be any rain these years except by my word. Beep, beep, and he's gone. <laughs> I mean, he probably had a, you know, maybe they didn't even know, have a good description of this guy when they were looking for him for three and a half years. What does he look like? Well, he's about five, six, and you know, and, he, and, um, and, he, and everybody in this country is about five, six. I mean, goodness. But they, they couldn't. They, now, is this you? And he calls him, you, the troubler of Israel? Why would he say that? Because there's no rain. Why, there, why is there no rain? Because Elijah prayed. Clearly, Elijah's the problem. Not so fast. Remember Deuteronomy 28. If, if Elijah had prayed for no rain... While the people were walking with God, that prayer would not have been answered because God cannot violate his word. Elijah is a man of prayer, as James says. We're supposed to read the life of Elijah and figure out how prayer works. And the biggest number one lesson of prayer is God answers prayer that is in accordance with his word. And we must pray according to his word, and when we do, we can expect God to answer our prayers. Don't pray according to his word, you're on your own. So I'm sorry, that fancy car that you wanted to get, that you, man, you're praying about it, well, you're on your own. Pray according to God's word, God hears you. So he is not the troubler of Israel. And that's why, verse 18, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and you have followed the Baals, and that's why there's no rain. Don't blame me. All I did was pray in keeping with God's word. So send and gather to me at Mount Carmel all the prophets of Baal, 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah, we're going to get this settled once and for all, who the real God is. <coughs> so Ahab sent messengers among all the sons of Israel. Now this is one of those places where all means most. Because we know not every single man, woman, and child showed up at Mount Carmel. 
But the vast majority did. There would have been tens of thousands of people that were gathered. But the prophets of, of Asherah apparently didn't show up, but the prophets of Baal were there. And this tremendous question that Elijah asked in verse 21, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. Make up your mind. Do you need to say that to a Christian? Absolutely. Absolutely. Oswald Chambers, in his, in his devotional Might Must First Highest, it says one of the reasons that Christians struggle with sin is because they've never dealt with it once and for all that they belong to Jesus Christ. They've never just settled it. Sin is not who I am. This is not who I am. I belong to Jesus. I am a new creature in Christ, and this is not who I am. And Chambers says if we would just settle it, who we belong to, that we are the children of God, then a lot of the struggle with sin would just go away. Unbelievers especially need to hear this. I'll never forget talking to Rander Draper, pastor's Maranatha Bible Church in San Antonio. Great guy. And we get together and we go, Rander. He says to me, Charlie, and I say to him, Rander, and I go, two people could not be more alike and more different. His, he's African-American. And I'm not. And we get together and we just go, we're, we're brothers from a different mother. I mean, I love the man. But I'm telling you, that guy is bold. He told me one time he, he was preaching and, and he just told the people, knowing that there were unbelievers there, and he goes, what are you doing here on Sunday morning? He goes, this is the best you will ever have it. You're going to hell. This is the best you will ever have it. So why would you be here on Sunday morning when you can be out having a good time somewhere else? And he goes, you didn't say that. And he goes, yeah, I did, Charlie. That's what I told him. <laughs> this is what Elijah is saying here. Make up your mind. Don't try to straddle the fence. If you belong to Jesus, settle it. If you don't belong to Jesus, well then call it what it is. You're in rebellion against God. You are resisting God. But make up your mind. That's man talk. It's good talk. Occasionally we have to have that talk with students even in Bible school. Make up your mind. Is this where God has placed you? If it is, then settle in for the right. This is not where God has placed you, then do us all a favor and just leave. Make up your mind. I mean, when I was in Bible college, the first night, I'd already broken every rule the school had, I think. And I didn't even know they had a rule book. And so after I'm reading the rule book after curfew, didn't know there was a curfew. And I'm breaking the rules by reading the rule book. Unbelievable. <laughs> and as I'm reading through this rule book, and I'm just going, really? Really? Oh, wait. I can't wear blue jeans except on Saturday? You've got to be kidding me. On and on and on. That was one of the hardest ones. No blue jeans still except on Saturday. But God knew. And I knew I could spend, I knew I was going to be there for three years, and I knew I could spend the next three years fighting or just getting it settled. This is where God has brought me. God knew about these rules, even though I didn't know about these rules. And so it was never, never a, 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 an issue about the school. It was an issue between me and God. So, okay, God, thank you. Get it settled. So Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet. Oh, my, Elijah. I alone am... What did you just hear? There are a hundred other prophets besides you. Well, maybe, we'll give him the benefit of the doubt here. Maybe he means at this time, within this location, he's the only prophet, and that is true. Next chapter, he's going to say it, and he means he's the only prophet left on the planet. And he knows better. But there are 450 prophets of Baal, so that's what, this is what we're going to do. Let's each take an ox and cut up the ox and sacrifice it to our God 
And the God that answers by fire, that is the true God. And the people goes, yeah, we can live with that. So prophets of Baal, you go first. 450 of you. Uh-oh. What do you think you'd be thinking if you were one of those 450 prophets of Baal? Oh, my. We just got exposed. This has just been one big glorious sham. There is nothing behind this. You go first. So they did. They cut up the ox. They laid it on the altar. And they started crying out to Baal from the time of the morning sacrifice, which would have been probably 9 o'clock in the morning. And around noontime, we'll pick this up in verse 26. It came about that they took the ox which was given to them and they, and, they, and they prepared it. And they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. There was no voice. No one answered. And they leaped about the altar which they made. So now they're, they're jumping and getting after it. And it came about at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Call out with a loud voice, for he's a god. Either he's occupied or he's gone aside or he's on a journey or perhaps he's asleep and he needs to be awakened. <laughs> he's just laughing at them. Man. So they cried out with a loud voice. And they cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out on them. All of this to get their God's attention. And it came about when midday was past that they raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, which would have been about three o'clock in the afternoon. And the saddest verse in scripture, perhaps, that there was no voice. <coughs> no one answered and no one paid attention, but were not surprised. False God. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. So all the people came near to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. And Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come saying, Israel shall be your name. So with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. He made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two measures of seed. Then he arranged the wood and cut the ox in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four pitchers with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. They did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. They did it a third time. And the water flowed around the altar. And he also filled the trench with water. All of this just to say, because he knew what was going to happen. He didn't have any doubt. And you, and, you, and you can't make this an impossible situation more impossible. That's what he's trying to do. He just wants to, to refute any speculation that this was somehow a trick. That he had some of this wood, you know, soaked in diesel, and all it took was a little bit of, you know, a, you know just a, a flash, I mean, a, a lighter, and thing goes up. No. So he just soaks it, saturates it with water, so that if this thing ignites, everybody's going to know God did it. And then it came about the time of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and he begins to pray. Now the prophets of Baal, 450 men, have just prayed for six hours and nothing happens. Now remember, the story of Elijah is about prayer. Okay? 450 men pray for six hours and nothing happens. How long does it take one man to pray? Oh my, we're going to be here for months. I wonder if people were even paying attention because they have this ingrained belief system that the longer you pray and the more people that are praying, the more likely to have your prayers answered. One man praying? We can just go eat our supper. And Elijah begins to pray. I timed this last night. It takes less than 25 seconds to read his prayer. Oh, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Today, let it be known that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. And now I think he begins to back away. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that, the, that, that these people may know that you have turned their heart back again. And I like to say he's getting so far away from this thing because he knows. He doesn't even have the time to say, in Jesus' name, amen. 
Okay, because it's like God says, would you, all you had to do was just say fire. You didn't, you didn't even say all this stuff. Just fire, God. And, but he is moving away, and it's like just a, a missile hits this thing. And what does it say here? Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. I think we're supposed to read it like that. Okay? There's nothing left. It's a hole in the ground. Boom! Smoke! Gone into oblivion! And what do the people do? Same thing we would do. And the people all saw it. They fell on their faces and they said, The Lord! He is God! The Lord! He is God! You got the point. Now why do they do this? Because they're afraid. They think they're next. Right? They've been worshiping this false God for who knows how long. Three and a half years is just the last three and a half years of it for a long time. And now they see what the true God is capable of doing. And then he's prepared to just smoke you, literally. And so they're on their faces. This is the nation of Israel. It's not just a few people. The nation of Israel on their faces going, oh my, we're next. Right? Now, sanctified imagination. Hope it's sanctified. Every people on the face of the planet... They dress according to what they worship. If you don't believe this, just go to a big international airport, Vancouver Airport, <coughs> even Denver Airport, and man, you see that guy's in orange. Well, you know, Baha'i, you know, or, or Buddhist. A guy's got big turban on, Sikh. <coughs> that guy, probably Muslim. That guy, Orthodox. And so we all dress the part. Why would they have been any exception? All these years of worshiping Baal, and now they're on their faces. The Lord is God. The Lord is God. And I think Frank looks over at Joe and goes, Joe, you're a baseball cap. What? It says, I heart Baal. Oh, my. He gets rid of the baseball cap. <laughs> Frank looks at Joe and goes, Joe, what? Your sweatshirt. What? A University of Baal. Oh, my. That goes then. And Frank and Joe look over at Sam, and he's got, oh, the Lord's God. And he looks at his bracelet, WWBD, what would Baal do? And man, they're, they're getting rid of all that stuff. I probably have to apologize to God someday. On this. I, th I think that literally here, these people would have been looking and dressing the part. And when they're crying out the Lord is God, they're getting rid of everything. They're shucking everything that has anything to do with Baal. And then Elijah says, bring the prophets of Baal here. They killed all 450. Then Elijah goes up and he starts praying. Goes up to Mount Carmel. On top, he's already on it. Goes up further on the mountain. Tells Ahab, go eat your supper because rain's about to come. And so he went up and prayed. So then it says in verse 42, So Ahab went up to eat and drink, but Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he crouched down on the earth and put his face beneath, between his knees. And he said to his servant, Go up now toward the sea. So he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go back seven times. And it came about the seventh time that he said, Behold, a cloud as small as a man's hand is coming up from the sea. And he said, Go up and say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down so that the heavy shower does not stop you. And it came about in a little while that the sky grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a heavy shower. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel, somewhere between 17 and 25 miles away. Now, when he prayed for fire, 25 seconds, fire comes. Didn't need to pray for 25 seconds. Could have prayed two seconds. Prays for rain has to pray seven times. Why the difference? I don't know for sure that we're not told, but my hunch is because Satan is doing everything he can to keep rain from coming because he's right on his heels now with defeat. Why do I think that? Because in Daniel chapter 10, Daniel starts praying and has to pray for three weeks. And he is the most righteous man on the planet at the time. And when he finally shows up, 
Gabriel says to him, Daniel, I am really sorry that it's taken me three weeks to get here. God sent me the moment you began praying. But the prince of Persia, who was a demon, came out and resisted me. And I've been fighting that guy for three weeks and couldn't get past him until Michael, the angel of, of Israel, showed up to help me. And when I got free of him, I came quick as I could. So why the delay? Spiritual warfare. And again, we don't get this because I'm so thankful that we can't see angels and demons. I mean, it, it worries me when people tell me they can see angels and demons. Goodness, that is not a, a spiritual gift in my estimation. But God here uses angels to accomplish His purposes. They are His messengers. And apparently God on occasion will use angels to bring about answered prayer. And a delay could be because of spiritual opposition in the heavenly places. Do we know anything more than that? No. And so I can't go any further than that. But that's what the Word of God would indicate. That sometimes the delay in an answer to prayer is not because our prayers are not being heard. It's not because we're praying in the wrong way or we're praying for the wrong things. Everything's correct, and Satan knows it. And the devil is doing everything he can to keep our prayers from being answered. What, we should, what should we do? Persist in prayer. And Elijah persists because he is absolutely confident that he is praying according to God's Word and he knows sooner or later God is going to answer this prayer, and he expects it to be soon. And God did. By the way, 1 Kings 18 tells us there are two powers that control the weather. God and the devil. The Bible doesn't give us any indication that there is any other power that has any control over the weather. Our scientists can't even predict the weather, much less control the weather. If I read my Bible correctly, Satan does have some power over the weather. We see this in the book of Job, where God gives Satan the freedom to, to mess up and destroy the life, the, the circumstances of Job without taking his life. And one of the things that Satan did was create a massive windstorm to collapse the house that Job's ten children were in, and they all died at the same time. Windstorm. Natural elements. Satan did it. And so we see that Satan, the god of this earth, the god of this world, has power over creation itself, over weather systems. But we also see that God is much more powerful than Satan, and he can overrule him at will. Now, last part that I want to hit. It appears to me that there are, when it comes to prayer, in this chapter, there are four things that pagans believe about prayer. And unbelievers pray. They certainly do. Okay? Much of this world, the vast majority of this world, something like 98% or something, some might want to say it's maybe no higher than 90%, but at least 90% of this world is religious. And those religious people pray. And many of them pray regularly and for long periods of time. Pagans believe four things about prayer that are not true. And they should have no place in the heart of the believer in Jesus Christ. The first is that location matters. Why do the pagans believe this? They believe that some places are holier than others, that God is more in one place than another. Pagans believe you are more likely to be heard in a church or a cathedral or a temple or a mosque than you would be in your own home. I hope you do not believe that. You do not need to go to a church, a temple, a mosque, or anywhere else in order to be heard by God. You can be anywhere, at any time. And God hears you and longs to hear you. Location simply does not matter. It does to the pagans. 
And that's why Elijah wants this contest to take place on Mount Carmel. Because Mount Carmel apparently was the holiest place for the worshipers of Baal. So it's like Elijah just goes, let's give you home court advantage. Okay? Let's just go where you are most likely to have your prayers heard. Mount Carmel. Oh, man, they were all in on that. Yeah. Meant nothing. And Elijah says, I can go to the devil's den, which is Mount Carmel, and know that God hears me. Jesus said this in one of the um, statements to the seven churches of Revelation. I know where you live, where Satan dwells. One of those churches lived where Satan dwelt. But Jesus rebukes them. No excuse. No excuse. When Jacob was running from his brother Esau, and he came to Luz and spent the night there, he said, and listen to these words, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. And that's why he renamed that place Bethel, house of God. And that was a God-fearing man who we will see in heaven. And yet his thought about location was absolutely pagan. What he was saying was, if I'd spent the night anywhere else, I would have missed out on this. Location matters. It does not. It does not. What about the length of our prayers? That matters. Really? Length of prayer, long prayers get God's attention. God is impressed with long prayers. Jesus condemned the Pharisees for their many words and long prayers, supposing that they would be heard because of them. Matthew 6, 7 and Matthew 23, 14. First time I encountered this was when I was a boy spending the night at my Mormon friend's home. And he had two brothers, and the brothers, the three boys, all had their friends over. So there were maybe 10, 12 kids spending the night that night. And so we were being rowdy and having pillow fights, just having a grand time. And then the word came, time to settle down, time to go to the parents' bedroom and kneel around the bed. I'm going... What have I gotten myself into? We never did that in my house. And so we go in, and sure enough, mom and dad are already in the pajamas, and they're in bed. And all those kids, 12 kids, got on their knees around that king-size bed. And I made the unfortunate decision to be first in line. I don't know how that happened, but I was right next to the dad. And when he finished praying, it was my time to pray. Well, I'd never prayed like that before. You know, I thank God for the food. And so I was pretty, pretty green when it came to prayer. And so I prayed. Thought I did a pretty good job. And um, stopped praying. Said amen. Silence. My Mormon friend elbows me. Pray longer. Pray longer. Oh my. So I prayed longer. Amen. Silence. Pray longer. I had to pray three times. I thought every one of them were long prayers. Longest night of my life, I'll tell you that. <laughs> Apparently, Mormons believe God hears you for the length of your prayers. Short prayers apparently are flippant prayers. They could be. But long prayers can be all about self. Duration doesn't matter. God exists outside of time. Time has no constraints and does not impress God. How can the eternal God be impressed by time? <laughs> it does not impress Him. Eternal God, impressed by how long I pray, give me a break. Our Bible college used to pray all night long sometimes. Oh, we were so spiritual. 
I didn't participate very long in those all-night prayers. I was not very spiritual. What about emotion? Oh, emotion. God wants us to be emotional. He wants us to be passionate in our prayers. Well, not so sure. The pagans think so. How emotional were the prophets of Baal? Just about as emotional as you could possibly be. Leaping, crying out, even cutting themselves. And no one heard. No one paid attention. And there was no answer. Does our God expect that? Emotion? Intensity? Drama? God looks on the heart. And he desires truth in the innermost being. Doesn't say he desires emotion. Sincerity is what he values. Judas wept. The rich young ruler left dejected. But neither was willing to turn to God. You can have all kinds of emotion. And it can be nothing. I mean, your tears can be nothing other than self-pity. And I don't think God responds to self-pity, at least the way I'd like for him to respond. God, my life is so bad. Why don't you do something? <laughs> We're going to see this coming up with Elijah in the next chapter. Self-pity. God, just take me home. And God says, why would I do that? You're so miserable, I don't want you here. <laughs> I love telling the story that when our boys were little and, and they'd been playing that day in the mud, just having a grand time. We still have pictures from that day. And that night as we were getting ready to pray, one of the boys said, Dad, do you think God thinks I'm funny? And I go, yeah, I, I kind of think God probably thinks you're pretty funny. He goes, okay, good. And, there, and now it's prayer time. And he says, God, thank you for mud. I am really glad you made mud. And he's laughing, and his brothers are laughing, and I'm kind of laughing. And, and I'm not rebuking him. Because he is, he, even though he's being funny, he sincerely thanks God for mud. I mean, this is the best thing you could have ever made. And I think God is saying to Michael and Gabriel, come over here. You know the last time anybody ever thanked me for mud? And this kid's thanking me for mud. And we had a good time. Wasn't going to begin to rebuke my little boys for approaching God with sincerity of heart. We should be as little children. But the biggest thing. So I'm just working through these things. We as super spiritual Christians, we would never let location influence our things, thinking. If I could just get back to Bernie Bible Church on a Sunday morning, everything would be right. If I could just go back to his hill again and do a do-over, everything would be right. No. One writer says it only takes a moment to get out of fellowship with God, and it only takes a moment to get right with God. And that does not depend on location. Duration, goodness gracious, God created this whole world out of nothing in six days. Jesus paid for an eternity's worth of sin in three hours on the cross. Time means nothing to God. Emotion, God just wants us to be true, sincere. That doesn't mean that emotions are bad. They're just emotions, but they don't get God's attention. They impress us. Goodness, I can't handle it when a girl's crying. I mean, I, you know, I just, what do I do? Just, well, I'm a man, you know, and, uh, you know, just, you know, rapture, 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 rapture. That's what I'm praying. <laughs> God is not like us. But the one that is most difficult for us to get our minds around is the impact of numbers. 
Because one of our favorite verses, Matthew 18, wherever two or three are gathered together, Jesus is in their midst. And we take that to mean, and by I'm not going to take the time this morning because we're about out of time, but you look at Matthew 18 and where that paragraph starts, it is not about prayer meetings, folks. It is about confrontation. If your brother sins, go to him in private. If he listens, you have won him. If he doesn't listen, take what? Two or three more with you. It's all about confrontation. And Jesus is saying to the person who's being confronted, if two or three gather together in my name to do what? To pray? No, to confront you. To confront you. You should count another person. Because they're not alone. Jesus is saying, I'm with them. He could have said if 30 or 40 people. Doesn't matter. And the number wasn't the issue. And he's not saying that somehow he magically shows up when you get two or three Christians. If you have Jesus, you have all of Jesus. You. You don't need more Christians to get more Jesus. Jesus said throughout the Gospels, when you pray, do not be like the Pharisees who stand on the street corners in order that they might be heard and seen. But when you pray, go home, go to your closet, shut the door, and your father who sees in secret will hear you and answer you. So Jesus put no emphasis on corporate prayer. Now we see it in the Psalms, and we see it in the epistles, but you read the, the, read the Gospels, and the emphasis that Jesus puts on prayer is private prayer. Get in your closet and shut the door. Now, if numbers mean that I'm more likely to be heard because I've got 5,000 people praying instead of just me praying, then why would Jesus ever say, go to the closet and shut the door? He should have said, call a prayer meeting and you will be heard. He didn't. Isn't that interesting? He never said, call a prayer meeting so that you'll be more likely to be heard. And this is where we are more like the pagans than any other area when it comes to prayer. Psalm 116 says, I love the Lord because he hears my voice and my supplications. If you were the only person on earth, Jesus would have died for you. So why do you need thousands of people to pray for you when you're in need? He would have died for you if you were the only person. He's not more inclined to help you when thousands of people are praying for you. He is not a politician that needs to be lobbied. He is a father who gives unfettered access to his children and who eagerly hears them. As a parent longs to hear the first words of his child, God longs to hear us. Our prayers are as a fragrant incense before him. Whereas I like to think of it, they smell like barbecue before him. There's no better smell on the planet. Walk into a good barbecue restaurant and I'm thinking, this is what my prayers are like before God. <laughs> so then, why? Again, I am not chastising anybody. I am just as guilty of this as everybody else. I, I, I have no problem. It encourages my heart to see Christians saying to other Christians, pray for me. Paul did the same thing. Pray for me, he said. Why is it that we feel so compelled, this compulsion that's within us, I believe, by the Spirit of God, to call upon the body of Christ to pray if God is not impressed with numbers? Because he's not. God is not constrained to deliver by many or by few, Jonathan said to his armor-bearer. God said to Gideon, you have too many people here. Get rid of some of them. God only needs one. Then why do we feel so compelled to have everybody pray and we think, and this is the pagan part, we think that we're more likely to be heard because thousands of people are praying. Why does God move upon us to pray corporately? I believe because John 17, Jesus says, Father, make them one. That the world may know that you have sent me. And sadly, oftentimes the only time that the unity of the body of Christ is expressed is when we are praying for each other. There are folks right now that I have no doubt 
that they belong to Jesus and they love Jesus with all their hearts. But they would not feel comfortable coming to Bernie Bible Church because various reasons. Maybe because we don't speak in tongues here. Maybe because we don't have women elders here. And they go, you know, I'd rather go someplace that just fits more with my preferences. I get it. But do I question that they belong to Jesus? No. And when I'm in crisis, do you think I'm going through my theological index and saying, okay, who am I going to ask to pray for me? Oh, they pray in tongues. Nope, nope, nope. Oh, they think there should be women elders. Nope, nope, nope. But God doesn't hear them. No. I just go, pray for me. Pray for me. And somehow all these issues that I'm not saying aren't important, but they aren't nearly as important as the unity of the body of Christ. And I'm not asking for people to to agree with my doctrinal statement when I need prayer. I just want you as a brother or sister in Jesus to cry out for me. And we come together as one. And the heart of God rejoices. Because this is why Jesus gave himself for us. To make us one. So don't stop putting your prayer, your prayer um, request out on our prayer chain. All for it. Praise God. But just understand, it doesn't make your prayers more effective when thousands of people are praying. But it does please God to know that the body of Christ is coming together as one. And with that, I'll pray. God, thank you so much that you are the good God and loving Father that you are, eager to hear the prayers of your people, that they are as fragrant incense before you. That we don't have to lobby you. We could go to our closet and shut the door and know we are in the audience of God, the presence of God. Thank you, Jesus, for this. Thank you, God, that you hear us when we pray. And it is because you love us. And because of Jesus, our mediator and intercessor, who has gone before us and opened the way so that we can have direct access to you anytime, any day, by ourselves or with others. And I do pray, God, that we would not be unnecessarily divisive of this precious body that you secured through the blood of your Son and that we would count it, God, the greatest privilege known to mankind to be in union with you, union with each other because of Jesus and that we would truly covet one another's prayers. In Christ's name, amen.